porn is a tool and porn can be a very wonderful thing to watch by yourself with a partner, with partners, whatever, um, and whoever is around. Um, I think that it's just a matter of finding um, the right kind of porn for you and also educating yourself about porn literacy, what goes on in front of the screen and also behind the scenes um, to cultivate a safe space for performers, for producers, for videographers, for everybody involved in production of porn as well. So I also started seeking out just like who are people making really great porn and are doing it in a way that aligns with my ethical values. That was Cameron Glover. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 186. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. In a minute, we are going to get straight into today's conversation, which is all about pleasure and sex education for adults. It's a good one. But before we get to that, I'd love to say such a big and sincere thank you, seriously thank you, to the 440 plus people in our Patreon community, whose contributions of $1 or more per episode are literally what make this entire show possible. You know this already, I'm sure, but this is a 100% listener-supported show with no ads or sponsors, which means that these conversations are financially supported by awesome, regular people just like you. You can join us and learn more about all the fun bonuses you get as a community member, there are tons of them, over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your financial support is what will allow me to keep making three new episodes per month next year, and it pays everyone involved in creating the show. That includes me, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests. And now that our community has met the funding goal that makes that possible, it means that all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for the time that they spend with us. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And if you're in a place to be able to contribute $1 or more per episode, which adds up to just $3 per month, I would so, so appreciate it. Right now, I've set a funding goal that when it's met will allow me to get transcripts made for future episodes, a costly but super important step in making the show more inclusive and accessible for all. And I would love your support to make that happen. Thanks so much for joining us if you're able to do so. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Cameron Glover. Cameron is a sex educator, content creator, and sex ed business coach. A fierce advocate for pleasure as transformative power, Cameron is passionate about supporting other sexuality professionals in creating thriving, authentic online businesses. She's also the host of the Sex Ed in Color podcast, centering the experiences of sexuality professionals of color. In this episode, Cameron tells us all about her work as a sex educator for adults and shares stories about why pleasure is indeed a transformative power. She talks about specific practices to bring more pleasure into your life, why pleasure doesn't have to be earned, how shame can block our pleasure, and more. We also talk about the sex-related beliefs and behaviors that she herself has had to unlearn, as well as some of what she does to make her industry more centered on marginalized voices and experiences. And of course, I couldn't let her go without getting an excellent recommendation for ethical porn and a beginner sex toy. (sighs) All of that to say that this conversation is about sex, sure, and it's a good one, but it's about so much more than that. You'll see. 
So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at realtalkradiopodcast.com. All right, we are good to go. Cameron, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, I have been excited about this. This It's funny, this won't be the last one episode that's released this year, but it's the last one that I'm recording this year. And so I woke up today with this very like, oh my gosh, this is the last one of the year and I'm so excited that it's you. <laughs> like the best, um, no pressure or anything for being the wrap up now. No, no pressure. Don't, no pressure at all. I take all that back. <laughs> Restart. Um, here is where I want to start. So there's a little game, I guess we can call it a game, that I learned from my dear friend, Julia Hanlon. Hi, Julia. Julia of the Running On Own podcast. And she has a little game called Rose Thorn Bud that I really Ooh. like. Basically, the way it goes is you share your rose, something that's felt really lovely lately, like something that's going well for you, your thorn, something that's been challenging lately, and then the bud is something you're feeling excited about that's coming on the horizon, if you are down to play this little game for me. Yes. I used to be a summer camp counselor, like way, way, way before I started my professional career. And I'm very familiar with this game. <laughs> That's funny. I So I I was a ca- summer camp director for five years, um, never a counselor, wow. but ran a children's day camp and had never heard of this game. So apparently we were not doing it right at my camp, but I'm glad that you know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was definitely a um, sleepaway summer camp kid. Um, so I'm very familiar with this. I'm like, well, it's all rushing back to me now. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. So what's your rose? Oh my gosh. So my rose, I would say is that I had my first Black Friday sale and I think that I did really, really well. Um, I know I did really, really well. Like people actually purchased during the sale. So that's a big win for me. Um, and this is my first year uh, selling digital products and really getting into um, different streams of income. So I'm like super, super proud of myself for that. That's a really big recent win. My bud, I would say I'm really looking forward to 2020. Um, I'm already working on a few projects work-wise, but also really being intentional about building out a, I hate the term work-life balance, but like that's actually what it is like really not just focusing on work stuff and like productivity but also making sure that I'm making space for the things that matter during my off hours too and in my personal life and I would say my thorn what would be my thorn my thorn I guess is feeling kind of uh I don't know if there's a word for it, but like, you know, when you're like really excited for like what's coming up and like you're in this in-between space from like, you just ended like a really big project and you're excited about that and you're excited for what's coming, but you're in this space of like, I don't know, lull space. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I feel like that's kind of where I am and it's, uh, I'm teetering around it. So I guess that would be my thorn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Many follow-up questions. Um, the Black <laughs> Friday sale thing, congrats. I know that it's always kind of nerve-wracking to have either a new income stream or a new venture and to feel like, how is this going to go, right? And you just never really know until it happens. Um, I'm wondering with stuff like that, do you have clear kind of metric-based goals for stuff like that? Like what does success look like for you? I guess like using this as an example. Yeah. I love that question because it is something that 
I am becoming very intentional about and I want to be like clear about um, what that journey looks like for me and also how I define success because it's not about like, oh, hitting like massive financial goals. So for me, of course, like I... I've been selling digital products since July, actually. Um, so over the last six months, and it's wild, like how much it's changed my life professionally, and how it's like really boosted my confidence and like my ability to impact people as a sex educator and just like help people on a bigger scale than I would if I were working one one on one with everybody. Um, so I really love that flexibility. So instead of thinking about it solely in terms of like financial goals, because of course I still do like projections of like, okay, these are how many like copies of an ebook or like tickets to a webinar that I want to sell and like what marketing looks like and all that kind of like behind the scenes work. But for me, I really want to look at it through impact. So what are ways that I can bring solutions to my audience? Like, what are the things that people are really struggling with? How can I bring a new perspective and how can I make it easier for people to get to that point B space Mm -hmm. um, from where they are to where they want to be? And that's kind of how I gauge success. So the more people that I'm able to help get from point A to point B and how many people I'm able to help within my community, like that to me is success. Yeah, I love that. And that it sort of ties into what you were saying about wanting more work-life balance. And I agree, that's not necessarily my favorite phrase, but we all know what it means, right? So mm-hmm. let, let's just go with that. Um, lo- I guess like looking back on this year, can you share some of the ways that maybe that balance has been like a struggle for you? Because I think this is really relatable for folks. Yeah. Um, oh, geez. <laughs> so much. I'm also, um, well, there's just been a lot of things in my personal life that I think have been coming to the surface. Um, Some things that I don't want to dive too into because they are um, personal to me and involve other people. But um, I guess speaking from my perspective, um, health has been a big thing for me this year and feeling like at the cost of prioritizing my health and taking care of myself, you know, I've hit these like financial goals that I've set up for myself and like, it's just really interesting noting how much like my online communities have grown and like how much more visibility I have now that the things that at the beginning of the year I kind of thought were stretch goals or things that I wouldn't get to now they are they've happened (laughs) and I know that they can happen again right but it's also made me really think about okay I can't put myself on the back burner as well and something that I've been thinking about a lot lately too, I'm like really wanting to get into having and cultivating a spirituality practice again. Um, So for me, I'm really into like really witchy stuff. (laughs) So like tarot and like Oracle cards and like affirmations and meditation and all that kind of like woo woo stuff I'm like really into, but I've also put that kind of on the back burner these last, like I'd say since the summer, So I'm now finding ways to like reintegrate it back into my daily routine. And it's been really rewarding just to like have that time in the morning and like right before bed to like do meditations and like journal. And like, it's not so much about the acts themselves, but it's more about 
they help me to feel like my best self. And I go to sleep every day and I wake up every day just feeling how I want to feel. And to me, that is like really priceless so that I'm better able to show up for myself um, and also for the people that I interact with throughout the day. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's it's so real and relatable, the idea or just like the truth that sometimes like we know the things that make us feel best and that doesn't mean that we do them all the time, right? They like mm-hmm. get put on the back burner because we're busy at work or we're caring for other things or just that it's it's one of those things that unfortunately or I guess – as a human, it tends to be cyclical for me that I'm like, oh, right, that thing makes me feel really good. Why did I stop doing that? And it's kind of, I feel like I'm in a continual, like trying to be gentle course correction, right? Where it's like, you move the mm-hmm. pendulum a little too far this way, and then you like move it back. And it's, uh, I think it's always nice when other people are willing to speak to the fact that, oh, yeah, that happens to literally everyone. <laughs> yeah. And it like reminds me too about my thoughts on self-care and how that's been evolving this year too, which have been like massive shifts, right? Um, So I always like to go back to Audre Lorde's original definition of self-care and like how it is not about the act itself. Again, like it's not about taking, or you know what, let me backtrack. It's not about demonizing certain acts. So I think that like in our culture today, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, self-care is more than like a face mask and like a bubble bath. But I think that like strays away from the intention behind self-care a bit. And I'm going to get into why. So I think that self-care can be two things. It's the things that we do to maintain that balance. Like how do I feel like my best self every day? Right. But it's also what we do when we're in a crisis and what we, when we're feeling off when we're feeling derailed for whatever reason, like maybe we're having a bad day, we're having a hard time. We're dealing with like, um, really difficult life stuff because that happens, right? Like what are the things that we do because we are craving that comfort in that moment? And I think that there's nothing wrong with having things that, make us just feel good for the sake of feeling good because we need that comfort and we need to self-soothe. So if that looks like taking a, like a bubble bath with a face mask, right? Like as long as that intention is there and we're mindful of like why we're doing the action and it's not just rooted in like capitalism or like performance or just like, I don't know, all these other like surface level things of like participating in self-care culture, then I think that that is okay. But also keeping in mind that self-care can look like other things that are not glamorous and sexy, right? Like self-care is just as much as like masturbating and like treating yourself to like something nice for yourself just for the sake of like getting that. But it's also about like the things that you do every day to maintain your health and your well-being. So like exercising every day, drinking water, flossing, things that like in the long run, they help to build up a um, and maintain the you that you want to be. Yeah. So when you think ahead maybe to the next like year or so, thinking about this idea of kind of caring for yourself and bringing in what feels like more balance for you with kind of your personal life and your work, do you have kind of I don't know, like any specifics that you could share of like what that vision looks like. Like when you think of like, yeah, that's what like a more balanced kind of work-life relationship would be. What does that look like? Yeah. Um, so it's actually really funny. I, um, I've been, I've committed to something really scary for my business and I invested in my first coach and she's been amazing. And something that she's already taught me is like creating this 
balance for yourself, how that feeds into being able to show up for your business and like for the things that we do for work. Um, and one of the things that she did very early on in her journey was that she created, um, she looked at her own definition of what abundance is and like started creating those habits as if she was already there. And one of the things that she started doing was she wanted to make time to have like real actual hobbies, which like as a millennial, I mean, what is a hobby? Who has time (laughs) for that? (laughs) Um, So she was like, she had this rule for herself that she would stop working, I think at like 7 p.m. and like no internet. Um, She would stop working at five and like there was no internet usage after 7 p.m., which like blew my mind. I'm just like, so what what are you doing then? (laughs) But like because she set up those rules for herself, she had more time to read. She had more time to like do yoga and like learn guitar and like do all these like really awesome things that helped her feel like a more fulfilled person. So I'm really thinking about the ways that I can do something similar for my life in 2020. So like maybe not having I don't know if I want to go as far as to like, you know, tell myself I can't use internet after seven. Cause I'm like, what if I want to Netflix? But, <laughs> but definitely having stricter rules for myself about, okay, these are the times that we work and these are the times that we are off and really being mindful of like not actively working all the time. And also to getting back to the things that make me feel good um, just for the sake of being good. Not because I want to like, monetize it or like use it for productivity in some way but just like it's okay to just have a hobby that's just for me so like writing for fun is something I really really miss doing and I haven't had the opportunity to in a very long time and like learning a new skill um I also I've gotten into like cooking a lot more this year so I definitely want to like get more into that next year maybe like ask my partner very nicely to help me um help teach me how to bake too because that's always something that I've wanted to do just like things like that and using um my hands more yeah yeah I love that I I mean I struggle with this a lot too the sort of what is work time what is not work time and I am Mm -hmm. also in the process of hiring a coach so similarities there yes Um, (laughs) and you know just like sort of I I think and obviously we're talking about it through kind of you know an entrepreneurial business perspective but I think this could the same principle could apply to anyone in different situations of you know sometimes there really is like you can get as far as you can get on your own. And then it's really helpful to have some kind of structured assistance, right? Whatever that looks Mm -hmm. like, whether that's a coach or a mentor or a teacher or therapy or, you know, those kinds of things. And it's something that I really believe in a lot, bringing in that kind of more structured objective support. And Mm -hmm. yet it felt for me really scary to make that investment. So it's, it can be tough. Yeah. But when you find also the right, person to support you someone that like sees you as a whole human being and are like you're not just your objectives you are like a whole person I think that it's a really great experience and I think too something that came up a lot for me as I was going through this process was this idea of like well I can I can look up whatever you know like Google is free and at my fingertips so like if there's something that I want to know, or I'm not sure about, like, I have no problem asking those questions and like doing the research myself, but it also gets to a point where just like you said, like investing in that help, um, can help you get there, not just a lot faster, but then you also gain that support system too. And I think that's something that 
I don't know, a lot of us really struggle with just like integrating into what does community support look like for us as opposed to I can just do everything myself and Mm -hmm. take all this on on my own. Yeah, I've also been thinking about the ways that the things that are our strengths. So for example, like in in my work and also in a lot of my personal relationships, like I'm someone who holds space for other people, right? Whether it's creating mm-hmm. a space on the podcast or in retreats or just in general. And that comes more naturally to me. It's something that I find really fulfilling. It's something that I love. And I think oftentimes when that's the case, that then maybe we don't have someone to do that for us as readily because we kind of default into that role. And it could be, you know, with anything, I'm just using my own example and Mm -hmm. starting to be like, okay, it actually would be really helpful to have someone whose job it is (laughs) to hold space for me. Right. And I think sometimes acknowledging that just because something comes naturally, more naturally to you or something is a strength doesn't mean that you don't also need it in return. Mm-hmm. Yes, so much that. So I'm really excited to dig into more of your work as a sex educator and all that you do. And I thought we could start um, with the story of how you got into that work. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love telling this story. So um, I, of course, like many people, I didn't really have much of any sex education growing up. Um, I think at like the dinner table I asked my mom where babies came from and she gave me like a super clinical answer. Uh, Just like, you know, they they pop out your vulva and like, that was it. Like that was like the end of the conversation. And the next day she got this, um, I don't know if you remember, American Girl had these like books about basically going through puberty and they were actually really awesome. Like they dived into not just like physical transitions in the body, but just talked about health in a very holistic way um, and also a really engaging way too. So like that book was kind of like set at the end of my bed and that was like the extent of the conversation that I had. So, and then I had really sad <laughs> sex ed, if you want to call it that in high school, which I grew up in New Jersey, which is one of the quote unquote better states to get sex ed from. Uh, so even then, like it still wasn't perfect. And there were a lot of things that was left out for me in this journey. So I actually started my professional career as a writer. Um, and I was doing a lot of culture writing. So looking at like how do cultures influence how we think about certain things and how groups of people interact? And I started writing more and more about sex and like sexual communities. And I was just like super fascinated by the ways that people are able to transform how sex looks like for their lives and also how it influenced other parts of their lives as well. So I was really jazzed about that and started doing my own research. And then I came across eventually to like, you know, how do you become a sex educator? Um, I joined a program and got certified and I just like do sex ed full time now. And I love the freedom that it gives me because I think that sex ed is, there's so much (laughs) underneath this umbrella of what sex ed looks like. And I'm also very adamant that I only work with adults. I only work with people over 18 because I think that there is a big misconception that sex ed is only for young people and children. And I think that that leaves out so much. So I'm really passionate about working with adults and specifically what I do now. I've transitioned even further into the field and I am a sex ed business coach. So I work with other 
sex educators and sexuality professionals um, to structure out businesses and kind of learn how to not only monetize our um, expertise online, but to create like actual real businesses that are able to be sustained um, while also not um, straying away from like what makes us authentically ourselves. So I'm really passionate about that because I really want to support other sex educators as well who are doing this incredible work, but are also making room for identities and experiences and communities that are often left off the table when we talk about sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned a phrase when you were telling that story, um, sexual communities. And I don't know that mm-hmm. I've heard that phrase specifically before. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So, oh, geez, sexual communities. I wasn't even like aware that that was like how I would categorize it until I said it. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so just like um, the ways that people integrate sex and sexuality in their lives. So looking at folks who are like maybe kinky maybe like polyamorous, maybe um, utilize sexual identity in ways that differ from how we are traditionally taught it should look, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, I think many of us have this idea that, or grow up with this idea rather that sex looks like something that you do in private, something that you do behind closed doors with your husband or wife or whatever. Um, and it's not something that you actively talk about. Right. So I was doing a lot of work and just like researching, like, okay, what does like sexuality look like for people that have experienced trauma? Like, what does it look like for people who live in intentional living communities or who are like openly kinky or do sex work? Just like living outside of these confines of like what society tells us is right or how sex should look. I was just really fascinated by. Yeah, that's so interesting. What do you think is something that through this process that you have had to unlearn about sex? Mm, that's such a good question. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've had to unlearn is this idea that pleasure specifically is something that you have to earn, which it's not. And this is actually one of my biggest motivators. And one of the things I love talking about the most with people when I do like workshops and teaching, because I think that there is a lot of messaging that tells us that we don't deserve to feel good for the sake of feeling good, especially if we are women, if we are people of marginalized genders, um, because gender is more than men and women. Um, I think we get a lot of messaging growing up and like around us in our cultures that we have to earn the right to feel good in our bodies. And when we look at what trauma is and how people experience trauma and hardship, it's presented as like feeling harm is the norm. And so when I think about pleasure and especially my own relationship to pleasure, something that I've had to unlearn is that like, I don't need to earn the right to feel good. Like I am a person that is worthy of love and respect. And like, I deserve to feel pleasure just because I'm, I'm here. (laughs) Um, and that's something that I feel like is such a radical act and something that I hold very dear to me, not just as a sex educator, but also as a black woman myself, as a queer person, as somebody that just exists, 
um, at the intersection of all these different communities. And I feel like every day I have to move through the world in a very particular way. I have to be aware of the ways that like people will undermine or subconsciously or consciously tell me that I'm less than, that I am not worthy. So for me to tell myself that I am worthy, like that is a radical act. So yeah, that was like a big unlearning process for me. But I feel like once I learned that, I felt like I could do anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love to dig into this topic of pleasure. Um, I remember hearing you say somewhere that you're a fierce advocate for pleasure as transformative power, which I thought was like, Mm -hmm. first of all, a very beautiful sentence. And just like an an interesting concept, right? Like pleasure being power, because I, like you, was also, I don't think it was the American Girl book, but it was like I was given Mm -hmm. a book, right? And like my (laughs) memories of sex ed growing up were basically like some book of here's what happens to, you know, your body or whatever. And then Mm -hmm. some like really fear-based kind of disease avoidance, pregnancy avoidance-based stuff in high school, right? And like, that was it. That was the sum of it. So pleasure wasn't even a part of the conversation. It was very, you know, good girls don't do X, Y, Z, right? Like, I think a Mm -hmm. lot of folks can relate to that. And so this idea of like, looking into pleasure I don't know. I just find it really interesting because, of course, it relates to sex. And then also it's bigger than that, too. Right. Like that's certainly Mm -hmm. not the only way that we can get pleasure. And so I don't know. I would love for you to talk about maybe some stories from your personal journey of prioritizing your own pleasure. Like because I feel like that's one of those things that sounds really lovely. And then it's like, but what does that actually Mm -hmm. look like in real life? Right. Like, Can can you share some of that? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was very um, important that I surrounded myself with models of what pleasure looked like from other Black folks specifically. And this is another thing that I think is still lacking when we talk about sex education is like, who are we saying deserves the right to feel good? And by that, I mean, when we look at like a traditional sex ed class, right? Like who are often the people that are talked about, are centered, are presented in whatever forms of media that we are shown, if we're shown anything. Like these are usually straight, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied white people. And so that was a really big thing that I knew that I wanted to challenge getting into this field as well, because I'm just like, well, I, if I feel like, not that I feel like, if I know that I deserve pleasure, that means that it's really important to showcase people who look like me, who come from similar communities and similar backgrounds as me, also embodying that pleasure too. And there have been examples of this in media and literature um, and throughout history too. They just haven't been brought to the forefront. They've kind of been pushed aside to the margins and kind of looked at as like other. So the first thing that I knew that I wanted to do to set myself up for shifting this paradigm was, okay, what are these examples and how do I relearn what pleasure looks like from this perspective? So looking at, again, the work of Audre Lorde, I just like adore so much because her work is really just like transformative and she really dives into the why of things in a way that challenges you to also think about it as well. And so in her book, Sister Outsider, I highly recommend that everybody pick up a copy if you haven't already. She has an essay called The Uses of the Erotic that's like very, it was really formative for me to read. And it just talks about what the erotic looks like and how we cultivate erotic power in our own lives. Like, 
through sex and sexuality, but also outside of that as well. And then I also looked at the work of Zora, um, Zora Hurston, looking at, oh my gosh, like just so many, The Color Purple, um, just so many books that I can't name right now um, that have been written by Black women specifically talking about uh, what love and sensuality and sex have looked like for them. And even though they weren't traditional sex ed books, they were still really important for me to read because they showcased a different kind of like intimacy than what I was shown. And so being able to have these models were really powerful for me because then I could I could have a foundation to start from. Mm -hmm. I can look at this and even if I didn't fully agree or if I pleasure just looked like something else for me as an individual, I still had something to springboard off of. So that's why it was really important for me to have these models, right? And through that, I also started examining what other kinds of media that I was looking at. So I am somebody that like I am very much porn is a tool and porn can be a very wonderful thing to watch by yourself with a partner, with partners, whatever. Um, and whoever is around, um, I think that it's just a matter of finding the right kind of porn for you and also educating yourself about porn literacy, what goes on in front of the screen and also behind the scenes um, to cultivate a safe space for performers, for producers, for videographers, for everybody involved in production of porn as well. So I also started seeking out just like, who are people making really great porn and are doing it in a way that aligns with my ethical values? So I'm a really big fan of Crash Pad series, which is under Pink and White Productions, which is a queer-owned um, and produced porn production company based out of San Francisco. And they do really amazing work. And what I love about it is that not only do they give performers um, and people in front of the camera such agency around what scenes that they do, what they're performing, but there's just so many different types of bodies and community members and just like experiences that are brought into the films. And so being able to see like fat bodies and queer bodies and disabled people and people of color um, just like experiencing pleasure in different ways, that also just like blew my mind too, because then I had models of like sex doesn't need to look like just penetrative sex as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that was super important. So yeah, it's just been a journey of like, I guess, figuring out like what what I want to learn and like finding those sources and being active about finding those sources for myself as well. So like I am fortunate that like I have a community of other sex educators as well that I could tap and be like, Hey, like I'm looking for resources on X, Y, Z. And like, I know that like other people who are happy to share those resources as well. So I highly recommend that like if these are things that are coming up for you, like finding these models can be really important because they help to light that path for us and show us that there is a different way, if that makes sense. And just being in control of like seeking those things out and creating that journey for yourself is like really empowering too. Yeah, I love so much about what you said, particularly the specific porn recommendation. That was going to be one of my questions for you. So <laughs> you, you definitely provided that. I'll make sure that goes in the show notes. But this idea, you know, obviously, I feel like in an ideal world, what was represented on a mainstream would be exactly the types of things that you're talking about, right? And the truth is that they're not. And I think that this, you know, it, 
it's unfortunate that it has to be sometimes almost like a scavenger hunt of, hey, I can't be the only one who's interested in X, or I can't be the only one with like these intersecting identities who wants this other thing, right? And it's true that we're never the only one, and that mm-hmm. other stuff is out there, and maybe we have to look a little bit harder, right? But this sort of idea that you're speaking to of sort of changing the gaze almost of, Mm -hmm. you know, what can I surround myself with or what can I hold up as like role models or like visions of what I want. And I feel like the more that we're able to do that, like you said, it can be really empowering and just like seeing something modeled that we've never seen before that can completely change everything. Mm -hmm. And it's also too, I find real power in like seeking these out because they also show me what I don't want and also what I would want to change as well. So I think that like, this has kind of been like a guiding principle in my life and like in business and just being a sex educator, being able to find these resources also showed me even further the things that are falling between the gaps. And so this got my like, my wheels turning (laughs) about like, okay, how can I fill in these gaps? Like what is not being shown here? And how can I dive even deeper into this work? And so that was really just like transformative too. And that's like how I started my podcast. That's how I started a lot of my projects actually, just like naturally seeing where these gaps exist and saying like, okay, well, I'm not going to wait around for someone else to like start this. So how can I create this in my own life? And whether that was like something that I did in my personal life or my professional life, it was just something that has never really led me astray. Yeah, I love that principle. It's something that I can really relate to this idea of I really wish someone would create, you know, whatever it is that you're interested, and then to have to stop and be like, wait, I'm someone. (laughs) Maybe I could do that. Sure, there could be like imposter syndrome or self doubt. And I feel like everyone has those things, you know, in different amounts from time to time, but that, you know, we can take responsibility for creating what we want to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So digging in a little bit deeper to this topic of pleasure, um, I would love to ground into some specifics if you are open to sharing. And and it also doesn't have to be in a sex realm, but like, what are some things that bring you like real tangible pleasure? Ooh, okay, so much. So first of all, naps. (laughs) Naps bring me immense pleasure. Um, I've, this year, I was able to like really think about like who I want to like follow on social media and the nap ministry mm-hmm. has like changed my life so much. I love the work that they do. Um, they're like actual certified ministry that talks about the need for rest and rest reparations for black people. And it's just like so nice to like be scrolling through and see a reminder of like nap doesn't like sleep or capitalism doesn't want you to sleep because it, breaks away from like the nature of capitalism, right? So take a damn nap. (laughs) And it's just like so nice. I also really have been enjoying teas lately. I love like nicely brewed green teas, Um, good movies, cooking, um, making really like savory foods (laughs) with people that I love, sex, masturbation. Yeah finding new toys that I really enjoy have been super pleasurable. Um, spending time with friends, rediscovering a new book or rediscovering books that I've loved and finding new parts about it that I really enjoy as well. Um, yeah, these are kind of just like small things that I can think of right now that bring me immense pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. But even being able to quickly have an answer to that question, I, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong. I would assume that's not always the case. Like we're just not taught how to do that. 
Yeah. No, it's definitely like a learned process. Cause even like the question, I think when a lot of people think about, um, sex education and even think about their own sexuality, they can't answer like what, even the question of like, what feels good for you, right? Makes some people like freeze up and they're just like, I have no idea or I've never, no one's ever asked me that. Or I don't even know how to begin that process of like figuring out what feels good for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Like with that in mind, what has helped you with that? Mm. Um, so I think that for me, what has helped is like not jumping into sex specifically to begin with. So like if you're someone who like maybe you've never been asked or asked yourself what feels good for you, like what you find pleasurable, maybe starting with something that is not sexually explicit could be a good starting point. So just thinking about like food or books or movies or just like everyday kind of like hobbies and things that we participate in naturally. Like what are the, what do you naturally gravitate towards? What are kind of the themes that pop up for the things that you like that you keep like going back to? And from there, I think like that can help start to inform you about your own patterns and habits and things that you're just naturally, that you naturally find attractive. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe instead of like sharing that with another person right away, maybe having a journal that's like you're creating just like pleasure lists, right? Like what are the things that feel good for me? Like writing about like one, two or three things a day that like made you feel really, really good. And over time being able to look at that record and start to see those patterns as well. Um, something that I'm really excited to be focusing more on in 2020 is like creating like actual pleasure practices as well. And like teaching more people how to create that for themselves. Cause I think that like, no matter where we are in life, I think that there is so much, again, there's so much power in like finding pleasure and like taking ownership of what feels good for us, whether that's something that's sexually explicit or not. So being able to like integrate pleasure as a practice and like, how can we create small moments of pleasure for ourselves throughout the day, no matter where we are or how we're feeling like that is also part of like transformative work as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. One of the things that I've been trying to lean into this year is engaging like sensuality. Like I, I'm someone who it's very natural for me to just like be in my head, right? That like the entire world and my entire life is like neck up basically. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, the sort of experience of embodiment is not my default. And that's something mm -hmm. I've really been trying to change and lean into. And I have found that one of the most helpful things has been like thinking about things that engage the senses. Like, oh my gosh, this candle smells so good. Or these sheets mm -hmm. are so soft. Or this bath is so warm, right? Like actual, and like you said, delicious food or those kinds of things. It's um, maybe sounds really obvious as I'm saying it, but focusing more on sensuality and kind of separating it from sexuality mm -hmm. a little bit, because I think that culturally those two words are really linked, has been quite an interesting practice for me this year. Yeah. And I think that too, it comes back to asking ourselves this question of like, how do I feel in this moment and how do I want to be feeling? So something that like, I've recommended to clients before is like when we're taking a shower or taking a bath, just like noting 
both like slowing down in the moment, right? So instead of just like rushing through our routine because we're like, okay, we got to get a million things done on this list and like water bill and kids and food and like boyfriends and blah, blah, blah. Like instead of just like letting our minds kind of dictate that and create that urgency for us, like taking like maybe five more minutes to like slow down and like just actually be mindful going through our routine. Like how does it feel when like the soap or the body wash like glides over your body? Like how does it feel when the water is like just right or when you're adjusting what are kind of like the thoughts that kind of go through your head as you're adjusting the water to get to that perfect temperature, right? When you're putting on lotion or body oil, when we get out of the shower, like how does how do your hands feel gliding over certain body parts like you know and just focusing on how on those five senses in that moment too like that in and of itself is a mindful practice and it's also a pleasure practice as well because it's forcing ourselves to slow down and again take inventory of just like what feels good and how are we going through this process mm-hmm. i also have another book recommendation of course um Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown also deeply changed my life this year. Actually, that was my, that was a book I treated myself for my birthday for, I like pre-ordered it and I got it like a few days early and it was such a treat to like go through. And again, it's one of those books that I just like go back to and I have so many sections that are highlighted and like, it's definitely not a book that I um, am precious with because there's just so much goodness in there and so much valuable information. So highly recommend Pleasure Activism and even Emergent Strategy. Um, her first book is really good too, but Pleasure Activism really focuses on like the act of feeling good and embodying what feels good in our lives. Yeah. I really enjoyed that book as well. Will you share from that book specifically one thing that like shifted for you in your life? Like what did you do different? What are you doing differently as a result of having read that book? I'm just way more conscious about pleasure being something that I can have at any point, (laughs) anytime that I want to feel pleasure, like I can, it's right there and it's available for me because I don't need anything. Like you don't need any special tools. You don't need to be in a certain place. Like you could just do it if you're like on a commute or like out and about, right. Just like thinking about what are you grateful for in the moment to like actually engaging in pleasurable um, experiences that you have access to. Like these are all things that create pleasure in our lives and like over time being able to take ownership of that and being able to say like this is what feels good for me so this is why I do it and I don't need another special reason to do that like that again is like a radical act and I think that's where the activism part comes in as well because when we start to shift towards what feels good that trickles down to so many parts of our lives again not just with sex but just like if we want to feel good all the time like what does that mean for the future of this planet what does it look like for environmentalism and social justice and racial justice and all of these like bigger kind of interconnecting um aspects of our lives too how does pleasure fit into that as well is also really important to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And earlier in the conversation, when you were saying essentially about having to unlearn the idea that pleasure is something that we have to earn, right. Or that we have to mm-hmm. deserve that kind of thing. I've been thinking about how 
like shame relates to pleasure, like how shame blocks Mm, pleasure, mm -hmm. I guess I should say. Right. I think like particularly when it comes to sex, I think that um, that's probably relevant for, for lots Mm -hmm. of folks. Is that something that you've experienced? Um, Like a sort of, and I don't even know like what necessarily my question is in this, but I just think that idea of like shame blocking pleasure is something to kind of dig into. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah. I mean, shame comes up so much because again, like, I think, at least for me, the messages that I got about sex, again, being something that was done in very particular ways and just naturally feeling like, no, <laughs> like this can't, this can't be right because this is not how I want to experience pleasure. These are not the only ways that I want to experience pleasure. Um, and going against that grain, like the initial things that come up for me were immense guilt, just feeling like, again, like, is there something wrong with me? Because, (laughs) you know, I like think this thing feels good or I think these things are visually appealing. Um, and there's immense shame in that as well, because we don't want to feel like the only ones we want to feel normal. We want to feel accepted. We want to feel loved. And also, too, there's immense vulnerability in sharing that. So when I think about, like, you know, some of my first partners and, like, how terrifying it was to convey, like, exactly what I wanted because I was so scared that, like, they would use that as an excuse to break up with me. Like, oh, she doesn't – I don't know. Like, (laughs) I think thinking about these things as, like, justifications for – why we are lovable or unlovable is also something that's rooted in the shame aspect. So again, like going back to this idea of like, once I understood pleasure being something that I didn't have to earn, something that was that was innately mine, this shifted the power from being in other people's hands, telling me what I deserved and who I was to like me telling myself that. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to reclaim that and break away from that shame and not only gave me this sense of like empowerment um, and confidence and being able to just say, you know, like, I want, like, I don't know, I want your finger exactly right here for this amount of time. And like, that's what's going to feel good for me. But it also gave me this power to say, like, to give ownership over who I was and who I am. And um, again, that just like, I think trickled into so many other aspects of my life as well. And it's also really powerful again, just as a person with marginalized identities too, because again, these, I think if we hold positions of privilege, it's harder for us to understand how these, like how easy it is to internalize feeling lessened Mm -hmm. and how often, um, how many challenges like people go through in a day just to survive the day. So this idea of like, I don't know, this like translates from like race and gender to like ability um, and so many other things as well. But like, there's just so many things that are normalized in our society. And we don't, if we are part of that majority, if we're part of um, the people of privilege, um, the people that are constantly seen and constantly affirmed that we are right, like, it's harder for us to sit and question like, well, who is being left out of this conversation as well? So that's also, I think, part of where the shame comes from. Because if you are, again, getting messages of love and pleasure and all of these things that like we say, 
everyone deserves, but if only like one kind of person is being upheld, actually receiving them, like think about who is being left out of that as well. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, it, ma- it, it makes so much yeah. sense. I agree with you completely. I also think, you know, it's it's almost like the unspoken rules of if you do, you know, these 10 things, like then you will be lovable, right? Or like then you mm-hmm. will have pleasure. And I, I think that some it was something that I've been I was reflecting on knowing that we were going to have this conversation is sort of along the journey of you know, like you said, empowering yourself to focus on your own pleasure. And I feel like there's one element of that that's what you spoke to of asking for what you want, right? And Mm -hmm. like being clear about that and giving yourself what you want. And then I feel like sort of what goes hand in hand with that is giving yourself permission to not do things that you Mm -hmm. actually don't want that you were maybe only doing for kind of like performative follow the rule, you know, like aspects. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me want to ask you if there is anything specific that you've stopped doing on this journey. And like my sort of first thing that comes to mind example of focusing on my own pleasure and being like, what do I actually want was when I stopped getting Brazilian waxes. And there's certainly Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. But for me, I'm like, this is not, this is bringing me the, whatever the opposite of pleasure is. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And that felt like very scary. And it seems like such a tiny thing, but the like potential rejection and am I going to be less sexy and what are partners going to think? And this is the kind of stuff that I'm like, this is what I wish people were talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And before I answer this too, I just want to point out something that's really important as well. What people do for survival, that that is not what we're talking about here. Like when we're having this conversation about saying no to things, it is what, what can we actually say no to things? Like this is not talking about what people do for survival, for whatever survival looks like for you. I just want to be very intentional about that. And not to conflate the two, because again, I think that like, especially for marginalized people too, we cannot, we cannot put the things that people do for survival in the same categories as like, well, you need to do this, right? Because that's how systematic oppression operates. And again, how we get into this um, model of shame and guilt and Again, just like oppressing people. So I just wanted to be like very clear. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. that. I yeah. think that's super important. And I, I also, I think on the list of things that aren't talked about enough mainstream, like that's definitely one of them. It's very easy to, to lump a lot of things into the same category, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, what you have, what someone has the like choice to opt out of, right? Versus mm-hmm. like you said, things that are being done for survival. Yeah, super important clarification. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And so that, and again, like that also in examining what people can do, what people have the choice to do in this moment with what they have, like to reclaim pleasure as empowerment for themselves. I think that also brings into a really important conversation of like consciousness into it as well. So like just being mindful of like what works for me. So like using your example of like Brazilian waxes, right? Like assuming that this is something that like, people can access if they want it, right? Like then the next step would be like, okay, like do do I actually want this thing, right? If I can't access it, how does it make me feel? And what would be like a better alternative? How can I rewrite the narrative of like feeling sexy if I don't get this thing mm-hmm. done, right? Um, yeah, I kind of forgot the question a little bit. No, but. no, but I mean this <laughs> This is awesome. No, my question was yeah. if there's if there is anything that you have chosen to stop doing as part of your like pleasure empowerment Ooh. process. Um I stopped saying sorry. I don't 
I don't apologize when I speak anymore. I am very much just like, I think very deeply about my words and I'm very conscious about the words that I say and I choose and how I speak. So no, I don't, I don't say that I'm sorry when I am talking anymore. Mm. (laughs) And I think that's really important. Um, I've also, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm definitely going to talk about more than one thing, but (laughs) um, something else that has been really important for me is to set very firm boundaries about how I want to be treated and talked about. So Mm. I think especially I can't talk about my experiences existing in the world without talking about my racial and gender identities because they are very much how I see the world. But it's also very important that people do not, or I do not allow people to kind of use that as like, this is the only thing that I am. Mm -hmm. So it's something that I feel like is very important is the power of self-identification too. And it's something that I do in the podcast as well. I never assume anyone's identity. I actually, the very first question that I ask all my interviewers is how do you, um, you know, how would you like to introduce yourself or how do you describe yourself? And I let them choose the words um, and how they want to self-identify because that's really important. So I think that like, especially looking at this through a racial lens, right? And how Black folks navigate different spaces, it's really important that there is room for us to speak about our Blackness in ways that are not just pandering and not just like, explaining our existence to people. There's a very big difference, I think, from like someone talking about their experiences and like race is very naturally part of what shapes their response versus creating this conversation around I am not black or I am not a person of color. So like, please explain to me or um, please I don't know, like justify your experience for me. Mm -hmm. I think those are like two very different things. So yeah, I've just become very firm in how I want to lead those conversations. And again, like starting to say no to people who like just want to have conversations about like what it's like to be black in a sex education space or just focus on one facet of my identity. I think that's very limiting. And it also, again, like comes from this like sort of pandering um, and very like anti-Black experience to kind of examine me as like an other and look at my experiences and my personhood through this like very voyeuristic lens. So yeah, (laughs) I think those two things are like very interconnected. Yeah. And and are huge, right? And are, I imagine, not not necessarily like a switch a flip, like a flip a switch, right? Where it's like, okay, well now these things are just solved for me and I have these perfect boundaries and never say sorry. Right? Like I imagine this is an ongoing thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting seeing the progression of how like they've shown up in different ways for my life. So one of the things that I started doing was like, it started in my personal life and then it kind of echoed into my professional life. So like Again, this is something I do for my podcast, Sex Ed in Color, but it's also something that I was doing in my freelance writing as well. So there was one article that I wrote earlier in the year about um, Netflix's show Sex Education, and I wrote a piece in Playboy about like 
it wasn't like, you know, super like groundbreaker or anything. It was just like, what do sex therapists actually think about the show? Um, and for folks that haven't watched it, the show is just like, it's set in this like English countryside town. And it's about this high schooler whose mom is a sex therapist. And he kind of like ends up, he's un- clearly unlicensed, but <laughs> he kind of like gives counseling sessions to his classmates in the series. It's very interesting. But the, um, his mother was very fascinating to me. So I was just like, you know, I want to interview folks who actually do this for a living and kind of like talk about what kind of was sensationalized for TV and what like is actually, what are some of the things that like actually go on during sessions. Right. And so it was really important for me to think about like intentionality and sourcing. Cause that's, I think also a form of like upholding, oppression and marginalization when we, um, people that are used in sources for writing specifically, they're seen as experts. We look to their input to verify what is being said in a piece. Right. And so we naturally uphold these people as like, okay, they know what they're talking about. They're experts. They are like, we hold a higher level of respect for them. And so often I think that, like, when journalists and writers especially are looking at sourcing, a lot of sources or a lot of sources are white unless a piece is, like, very explicitly about race, which I think is very harmful, again, and, like, creates this narrative also that, like, people of color cannot talk about their expertise outside of anything that is not their lived experience. So mm-hmm. it was very important for me for this piece and other pieces. Um, but it started with this Playboy piece of like having sources that like I, the focus was not on race at all. And yet I, all my sources were black women, sex therapists talking about their expertise. And so it was really intentional the way that I did that and like really important. And it was also interesting to note like the responses for people reading the piece, kind of like not making assumptions about who the sources were. And then, I don't know, just like kind of where that took off from there. But I was like really proud of myself for doing that. And like, because it was something that was really important for me. And it started this really important dialogue within my writer communities, I think about like, again, looking at like the ways that we're sourcing and how are we upholding certain ethical standards and how can we push back on those? Yeah, that's, I'm really glad that you shared that example because I think it's, it's such a tangible example of a seemingly potentially small thing, but not small thing that can be done like in your using, you know, your industry as an example to like disrupt and to change like what's usually done. And I think sometimes it's, I don't know, can feel overwhelming of like, what can I do or what can whatever? And like those types of things like, well, who gets to be an expert, right? And like, if I mm-hmm. have any say over, you know, using your, like you're saying, if you have any say over who's getting looked to as an expert, okay, cool. There can be like, you can choose with intention. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like this question too, of who's being seen as an expert, it still like goes on. It's like, look at who, who are folks that like are constantly getting recommended for awards and workshops and work and like how are people regarding different folks I think that like in my field especially people kind of in the field and outside of it right kind of go to the same handful of folks but there's so many people that are doing this work and that have been doing this work and that's really important to note as well like just because somebody maybe doesn't have like a huge social media following that doesn't 
eradicate mm-hmm. their expert level. And again, that's part of like my main mission with sex and in color. Um, so it, I'll just talk about the podcast cause I feel like I just like allude to it so much sure. <laughs> in my examples. Um, so sex and in color, I started it in October, 2018 and it's a podcast where I interview and center sexuality professionals of color. So I interview other sex educators and therapists and just folks in this field that are doing work around sexuality and all of my guests and, and are all um, black and non-black people of color. And it was really important for me to do that because it actually came from, there was this article that was shared on Twitter by this publication and they wrote about um, like 25 sex educators to follow on Twitter or something like that. It was like a roundup list and it was all white people. And it just like, it was just really incredible to see because I'm like, okay, like just reading this title, I can like give probably 50 names of people off the top of my head that I know that are doing this work that I would recommend. So like this article was kind of getting shared around and folks were like creating their own lists (laughs) of like folks. So I was like, you know, instead of like creating a thread that like will maybe exist for like a little bit and then kind of like you know, we'll be talking about something else. I wanted to create something that would have a longer legacy. And so I want this show to be both a springboard to like for people to find really interesting folks that are doing amazing work. But also like now, whenever I hear someone say like, you know, I can't find any Mm -hmm. people of color in, in this field, like doing this work, I'm like, there is a living like document (laughs) of like, that not being true now. And there is a springboard and I always leave room as well for not just for people to self-identify, but for folks to, to give recommendations for like resources and people that they also really respect and admire in this field and outside that have shaped their work. So like I, my hope is that people listen and they hear these incredible interviews and also look at the resources and the people that follow. And like, now you have other folks to kind of like start your own journey as well, because I also never want any of my work to kind of be the only form of education that people do. I want it to be a springboard. I want it to lead you to create your own answers and your own resources. But this is, I want to be like that first step, that like introduction to creating that foundation. And so like I can empower, uh, my hope is that I help to empower other people to like do that for themselves. Oh, that's so well said and something that like as also a podcast host, I relate to so much this idea of wanting to not be like the definitive space for whatever, but to mm-hmm. be sort of like, I think about it as like one step on down the rabbit hole for me where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. if you're someone who's interested in like, obviously, we're talking about, you know, sex and other things like, okay, cool. Now they know you. Okay, well, you have this podcast and you interview these people who also have these people that's like you can create your own like web through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so fun for me to kind of see where things naturally interconnect. Like who are people like always talking about, like who are folks, like what are the relationships with um, different folks who are being interviewed and like who haven't been on the show yet. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, cause there are definitely like some folks who like get recommended almost every episode. And then there's like other books and texts and like other pieces um, of research that also get mentioned. And I'm just like, Ooh, I can't wait to like get off this recording um, and edit, but also to like get this for myself as well, because I think it's really important too, that we look at 
we don't just take other people's words for things like that. We do our own research and come to our own conclusions about things. Cause Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, there's just like, there's so much and like are naturally as people, I think our ideas feed off of each other and like, that's totally fine. But as long as we are correctly citing where we're getting our information and not taking that on as like, this is something that I came up with all on my own, then like, it's okay to share those resources. In fact, I think that it's really, it makes me more excited to talk to people that know how to both cite their sources and aren't afraid to like say, oh, you should talk to this person. And like, my friend does this and like can make those connections. Like I love that connector meeting other connector people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a real generosity there too, right? Like I know this thing and therefore it's to be shared, or I know this person and I think you would be great together. There's something in that that feels very generous to me. Mm -hmm. There's a colleague of mine, Dr. Jess, and I participated in a workshop that she gave over the fall and it was really great. Um, And one of the things that she said during the workshop really stuck with me and it was talking about, um, collaboration and like community building and thinking about like, all right, how do we, I think someone, someone else in the session had a question about like competition and how do they stand out and like all these kind of like, it was a business kind of workshop. So that's where a lot of the questions were coming from. And the person's question like had Dr. Jess talking about this thing. So the thing that she said was, you know, suggesting asking people, how can I help you? How can I help to support you? And that really just like also deeply transformed me because <laughs> I think that there is a real power in that generosity. And like, I don't mean just like giving away all your things for free, right? Um, because I do think that it's important that like, if you're making a living off of something and this is what you do professionally, there's no shame in like charging for that. You should charge people for that. 100%. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, <laughs> like, like, No, but I think that it's really important to not where you can afford to be generous, be generous. Like there is nothing harmful about allowing folks to ask, ask you for help or sharing your expertise. So like something that I kind of formed that line for myself, if a colleague asks a question about how, like what program I use for something or how I create like graphics for like Instagram or something. I'm always going to be like, Oh, I just do it on camera. Like I'm not going to charge someone to like answer that question. Right. Because it's a tool. It's not something that like, it's something that is freely given and like anyone can have access to. So, but if somebody had a question about my methodology, about something that I myself have developed, I feel like that is where I kind of put that boundary down. I'm like, okay, like this is, this is something that like, I have worked and developed for and like that deserves compensation. But if you just want to know like what program I use to like edit my podcasts or like what I use to create graphics or like slideshows, you know, like (laughs) stuff like that, I feel like it pays more to be generous. And also people, when people know that like you want to show up for them, they will show up for you a lot more. And I feel like this year has really like proved that for me as well. Just like, me doing this work and not allowing myself to exist in a vacuum to like actively be like cheering other people on and like recommending other folks too. I think that's also helped in cultivating my community because now I feel like my professional community has grown so much. And now I have this amazing pool of like colleagues that I 
know I can ask this question to. And I feel like it is a reciprocal exchange, right? Like there are folks that I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I can share my community with you by having you as a guest on my um, podcast and like hopefully sharing the work that you do and like getting more eyeballs on that. And you can also help support me in these other ways that are specific to your area of expertise as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a way to like both be generous and also still be firm in like our boundaries and maintaining those, like, you know, these everyday things that we all have to participate in because we live in a capitalist society. Exactly. Right. Like, and I'm, I'm glad it's funny. I feel, I don't know that this is something that's necessarily been talked about on the podcast, sort of the nuances of generosity, but it's definitely something Mm -hmm. that I think about. And this idea that, you know, I really, push back against any sort of notion of generosity that essentially means like martyring yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, I have to give it all the way for free or like, nope, not at all. Like I think they can, as you spoke to, completely exist together. You can be completely, you know, very generous in lots of different ways, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean can't charge for stuff doesn't mean, you know, like can't earn your livelihood and all of that. And I think oftentimes having those boundaries of this is something that I don't do for free is generous as well, both as far as like modeling goes of, hey, it's okay to do that, right? It's great to do that. And also it just like makes the exchanges feel, I don't know, like better somehow. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like definitely for me, a like a misconception of generosity that you just like completely laid out in a perfect, perfect way. <laughs> yes. No, I agree so much. And again, like this was something that I had to like come to the journey of, but I feel like it's something that I've really, really honed in on this year because I think I'm naturally like, I want to help people. Like that's why I'm in this field and that informs a lot of the things that I do. So like, I love being able to help people and share resources. And I also love telling people like, well, I don't, I don't love it because I want to help folks, but it's a real gift to be able to say, you know what, this is not my area of expertise, but like, let me show you someone who does. So like I had a, um, someone reach out to me on social media recently who wanted coaching on a very specific thing. And I do, I do one-on-one coaching. I just don't, um, because I don't see myself as a traditional sex educator. There are certain things that I don't do. So I don't work with men and I don't really focus on like aspects of relationship coaching or like, that's just not my area of expertise. And so this person was like, you know, I really wanted to message you because I really resonate with your message and all this stuff. And she really wanted to work with me. And I feel like it's very easy for other people to feel conflicted because it's like, well, that's a client or like that's um, income or whatever. But to me, it's more important that like people are able to get the support that they need. And so I was like, not at all hesitant to just be like, Hey, this isn't my area of expertise, but I have this amazing friend that like does focus on this. And here are the resources that she has available for you. So like check her out, tell her that I sent you and like, just, Mm -hmm. I really hope that like, and let me know if like that helps too. And like being able to say that to me was super valuable as well. So like that generosity, it definitely is not rooted in martyrdom. It's I think rooted in, um, in abundance, right? I was going to say, what's the opposite of scarcity? Right, right, right. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I agree completely. I think that a, like, 
firm, kind, and aligned no is like one of the most generous things, right? Like to me, things that I have said yes to that I shouldn't have, that I wind up resenting, there's just an energy mm-hmm. there that everyone can feel, right? It doesn't feel good for me. It doesn't feel good for that. Like that it would have been much more generous and much more respectful of like me and whoever the other person is to just say no. Yes, 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 yes. Ugh. And so when we are allowed to a, well, we can say no to things, right, that are not aligned. Again, working outside of survival, now we are just like, what are things that like, it is not an issue for us to say no outside of just like, if we want to say no or not, right? Being able to examine that and say like, is this something that is going to bring me joy? Is this going to be fulfilling work for me? Like, can I reasonably step away from this? And like, how can I say no as well? Because I think that like, that's often something that comes up for folks. Like, you don't have to say no, period. And just like, that's the end of the conversation. Like you can say it in a way that is still aligned and like still leaves a door open for conversation if you want it to. And that can look like recommending other folks or like giving other resources as well, or like re-examining and restating like what you do focus on and having a conversation about that as well. Like there's different ways to kind of say no also. Yeah. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit back to sex education, I'm going to totally put you on the spot. Hypothetically, (laughs) you are given the opportunity to create, I don't know, like a day-long sex education workshop for adults, like completely, you're completely in charge. It's your dream scenario. I am interested in hearing the couple of topics that you would most want to teach on yourself. Like, what do you think is super important for people to be more educated on? And then maybe Mm -hmm. two or three, I know you just mentioned, you know, a lot of colleagues and other, you know, professionals in the space, let's say two or three people that you would love to bring in to teach alongside you and like what they focus on potentially so people can look them up. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So I love this question because I was already thinking like, who am I going to bring on to talk about the stuff that I don't, that's not in my zone of genius. So (laughs) I would say that day long seminar, there's going to be so much information. Um, Everyone is getting information and goodie bags and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, (laughs) But I definitely want to talk about pleasure um, and pleasure activism. I want to talk about social justice within sex education. Cause again, I think that component often gets lost and the two are very interconnected centering and talking about marginalized identity as it relates to pleasure and sex and sexual identity is just like so, so, so important that there is no one way to experience pleasure. And also there is no one type of person you have to be to, embody pleasure as well. It can look like many different things for different people, but it all comes back to that ownership of pleasure and that you are innately deserving of it. I always like to say pleasure is a right, not a privilege. And I feel like this definitely would be like the ethos for like this day long seminar, right? I also definitely want to dive into professional development for sexuality professionals. So like why the work that we do is so important and just like how we are professionals. And I think that there is a real like devaluing of like sex education being Mm -hmm. like a not real field, you know, or like whatever. (laughs) Um, Like I'm thinking about, you know, like certain when I go into certain spaces, sometimes I have to shift how I talk about my work or I don't talk about it at all because folks have their own preconceived notions about what sex education is, or they see it as something that's not important 
and just like have their own, you know, they're on their own journeys about that, which is fine. But kind of going back to the boundaries thing. Oh, geez, I'm like veering a little bit, but (laughs) bear with me. Um, Something else that kind of connects to boundaries for me is like understanding that like where people are in their own journeys of understanding sexuality and even unlearning sexual negativity like that's not my job to like take that on so like if I'm having a conversation with someone even if it's somebody that I love right like a family member a friend and they're projecting their own sex negativity onto me that's not something that I need to carry and that's something that I have every right to just say I'm not gonna have a conversation about this or choose not to like talk about or like delve into for whatever reason. Like that's a form of protection for me. And that's also a very real boundary because at the end of the day, I'm a person. And just because this is a work that I do, that doesn't like, that is not a value judgment on the kind of person I am or like my worth and value in society. Like it doesn't say anything about me except like this is the work that I do. So I think that is also really important too understand as well Mm -hmm. and unlearn. So anyway, diving back into the day long seminar, I want to talk about just like, yeah, so many things. And for kind of topics that I think folks really like to dive into more of like the one-on-one stuff, I would definitely tap my friend, Melissa Carnegie, um, who runs sex positive families. And she actually does work with families and children and young people. Um, she works with caregivers and parents of people under 18 to talk about sex and sexuality and just like, is just like an incredible, incredible person. Um, their interview on sex ed and color is like one of the most like listened to at this point. (laughs) Like there's so many people. Um, Evian Whitney, of course, I would love to tap. And Jiminika Eborn, I would love to have them both kind of come in and talk about embodiment and also trauma as well. So Jiminika Eborn is actually um, a sex educator who a sex educator who specializes in working with survivors um, and is creating this amazing healing retreat for survivors of sexual violence of color and is fundraising for that right now. And it's something that I've been talking about a lot too, but I just like love the work that she's doing. And I think that like creating more spaces to talk about survivorhood and relearning sexual pleasure after trauma is like super important. Yeah. (laughs) So those are like a few folks that I would definitely tap to kind of bring on to just talk about different topics in sex ed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love all of that. When and and maybe this is you're not going to have an answer to this because you just shared so much of maybe what would be the answer. But when it comes to topics of sex and sex ed, what do you feel like you wish people were more open and honest about? Uh, all the above. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there is such a there's still such a rigidity around what sex needs to look like, right? Like a lot of questions that people still have still center around this idea of like, am I normal? How do I fix this problem? Like it's rooted in this, I think, assuming that there is a lack starting and there's not enough space celebrating what we're doing right and celebrating you know, the wins that people are actually doing on their own, like being able to like 
I don't know, do that unlearning on your own or start that journey of unlearning is so important to be able to like be brave enough to ask questions and to seek out resources and to find folks and kind of do that work on your own. Like that's also worth celebrating. And I think leaving room for us to redefine what all these things mean is so important because sex, there is no one way to have sex. There is no one way to experience pleasure. Like it's all individualistic. So it's both a process of like unlearning and realizing like you have the power to do these things. It's just a matter of finding folks in the field who are doing this work that can help you to go about that journey for yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then on, on top of that, I think there's also just a big, big need to connect sex education to activism, to social justice work, because it is liberatory work and it is work. And it's so connected to everything that we experience in our lives. Like recently, you know, on social media, people have been talking about Billy D. Williams coming out. Um, and I definitely cried when I read the story because I'm just like, this is so beautiful. Um, Billy D. Williams just like coming out um, as gender fluid and using various pronouns and just like it's so heartwarming. And then also on the other end of the spectrum, we have the conversation about T.I. Um, saying that he, you know, attend, he makes his 18 year old daughter go on, go to gynecological visits to check to see if her hymen is still intact. Right. So we have these different things that are happening in the media right now that touch on different aspects of sex and sexuality. And every time I see them, I'm just like, this is why we need sex educators. <laughs> and this is why the work that we do is important because to be able to have the nuance um, of having these conversations, we have to, we can't just look at sex as something that is separate and apart from us. And we also can't look at it as something that is colorblind, is gender neutral. Like it's not, it's not neutral at all. And people, the, the identities and communities and experiences that we all have shape the ways that we experience them in different ways. So like both with Billy D and TI, like, yes, there is a level of like comprehension within sex education that needs to happen, but there's also a level of comprehension within like purity culture and like, purity culture within black communities and also black sexual identity and also the lifespan, right. And what sexual evolution looks like within a person's lifespan. And like, uh, just like so much <laughs> that goes into both these conversations, right. That could honestly be their own podcast mm -hmm. episode. Yeah, but totally. Yeah. There's just like so much nuance that's in all of this. Yeah, I mean, in creating a world in which there is room for that, right? Like any mm -hmm. any situation. I mean, looking at sex ed, I remember um, I've read a lot of your like writing and work, and um, oh, the you. piece that you wrote for I think it was Playboy, and I think it was last year about sort of the reality of sex education in the U.S. It was really eye opening mm -hmm. for me, and some of the stats that you shared. I think the one that was like the most horrifying that t only twenty states require that the information that's given in sex ed be medically, factually, and technically accurate. Like that mm. alone, I was just like, "What? What?" Like, and that number has actually gone down since last year. I mean, too. yeah, that doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. Yeah. And so it's like that, like even that specifically, right? So, so to look at like the hurdles to even have it be like factual information. And then if we're only given 
like education in such small bursts, it's going to like center around like one or a couple of identities that's like very exclusive and leaves a lot of people out. It's also like why it's so important and why I'm so adamant about saying I don't teach children sex education too, because when we limit sex education to just the classroom, we're leaving out so much. And then even looking at these statistics, what's always what always jumps out at me with this is that even the states that are check, checking all of these boxes, right, of like medically accurate, including HIV and STI education are like all these things that like statistics carry, there's still a lot that's left out. Mm-hmm. Like there's still no, there is no state that mandates that pleasure be a mandatory part of sex education in the classroom. Like there's still no mandatory regulation on like talking about consent and what sex can look like after experiencing trauma or even um, being a sexual being and like being disabled, right? Or how to navigate sex if you have a disability or even just like not making the assumption that everybody is heterosexual and like Mm -hmm. will have penis and vagina sex too is like not something that's mandated. So there's still so much room. I don't want people to get caught up in like the statistics. Like, yes, they do highlight where we still need to make improvements, but they also are not the end goal of like what sexual education and sexual liberation looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like for me, I think what was so, I don't know if I mean shocking, I guess, was like even that, like the statistic or like that seemed like a very low bar, right? Like mm-hmm. we're not even clearing like this very low bar than like the sort of explosion of what is being left out. Some of which obviously you have spoken to right? that like yeah. the solution isn't going to come from like, get it just like get the right things taught in like classrooms to eight year olds. Not that that's not mm-hmm. also important, but to your point that it's like a much more robust solution than that. Yeah. It's like, it is not an either or conversation. Exactly. It's an and conversation. Yeah, totally. Um, so at your um, fictional slash hopefully real one day seminar, you mentioned <laughs> really good goodie bags. Tell me um, a sex toy recommendation for someone that has never purchased or used a sex toy before. Any like beginner friendly things that you would potentially throw in this gift bag? Oh my gosh, yes. So I um, I am a sex toy enthusiast. Very much so. Um, But I would definitely recommend for people that have not ventured into them, kind of are intimidated, don't know where to start, right? Start with a wand. I feel like wands are very underutilized, but they're very versatile. And there are a variety of them on the market. Personally, I really enjoy the wand. They're created by a woman-owned brand. Alicia Sinclair is the creator and she's awesome. And the wands are just like, they're an updated version on like the magic wands basically. So Mm -hmm. you don't need to plug them in. They're USB chargeable and they have full size versions, which are pretty hefty, but they're also um, mini versions as well. The Luan Petites that are really fun to like hold. They're not super heavy. So you're not going to get like an arm cramp and you can use them on so many different parts of your body. So like you can do, you can use them on your breasts, on nipples, on If you are a person with a vulva, you can use it on your vulva, on your clitoris, but you could also um, use it to give really great back massages as well. And if you're feeling like super tense on your body, you can use it for that as well. So I just, I really love wands because they help to 
ease you into the world of sex toys, which can be very um, intimidating. And they also just like are fun to use. Um, They're really user friendly and like they're very versatile. Oh, I, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up with like very specific pleasure tool recommendations. <laughs> like a good place to 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 wrap this up. Um, the way that we end these episodes are with a series of eight, hopefully fun, rapid fiery questions that were submitted by my lovely Patreon community. If you are down to answer eight random questions, yes, I'm ready. What's one of the biggest things that's changed for you over the past decade? (sighs) Learning who I am. Mm, I love that. What's something that you'll always splurge on when you're in the position to? Good olive oil. Oh, okay. Any brand that you love? Which is very, very random. I'm still in a market for um, just like shopping around. I'm using up a bottle that I have right now, but quality olive oil just like makes such a big difference. Yeah, it's funny. I used to work um, retail at Williams Sonoma and uh, got to sample a lot of olive Mm. oil and like fancy salt that would have been very out of my price range at the time, especially. And it made me realize kind of to your point, like, oh my gosh, there's so many different flavors and there's so many different types and like the the fancy Mm -hmm. olive oil really is good. Yes. (laughs) Super random, but like that was the thing that popped in my head. That's great. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Current favorite song. What can you not stop listening to? Oh, geez. Um, the Steven Universe soundtrack. <laughs> I'm gonna, it's funny. I love taking notes on this so that when I go to the show notes, then I can look everything up myself. <laughs> yes. um, specifically, um, the soundtrack from Steven Universe, the movie. Okay. Um, yeah. Perfect. Um, what's one thing that makes you feel like your whole complete self? Having a really good hair day. What do you do just for fun? Uh, <laughs> just for fun. Um, read tarot cards. Oh yeah. Um, what's one thing that you're afraid of right now, but that you would love to overcome that fear? So I'm still very nervous about public speaking, but I still have dreams about leading like a retreat. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I feel like you would be a wonderful retreat leader. I hope that that happens. Yes. Um, You've already gave us a bunch of book recommendations, but um, the next question is kind of uh, any genre of book, you know, maybe two or three books that you would say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often if there's anything that you want to share that you haven't already recommended. Yes. So in addition to all the books I recommended um, right now, the three that are popping in my head Sula by Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite Toni Morrison book. And again, really formative about just like female relationships and sexuality and just all that good stuff. Um, Yeah. Can't recommend that enough. Homegoing by Yagi Yazi. Also, I read this year and it broke my heart and like put it all back together. Um, And I just, I'm due for a reread. It's so good. And to round it out, I would say Tiny Beautiful Things by mm-hmm. Cheryl Strayed, um, which is a collection of advice columns. And it's one of those books I like go back to and I it teaches me new things. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I love and how many times I have read Tiny Beautiful Things. I feel for me, it's like a gold standard of truth telling. 
Mm-hmm. It's oh, so, so good. Yeah, I love that book. Um, the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say write down on a piece of paper in a journal, in a Google Doc, whichever, how are you feeling right now and how do you want to be feeling? And really just like examine what comes up. Mm. That's such a good question. I'm totally going to do that when we're done talking. That's like such Yay. a good one. Um, what is the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite place to connect with new folks? Um, well, I'm hesitant um, to answer this because of SESTA-FOSTA and just like terms and conditions changing. So I will say um, the best place to find me is my website, CameronGlover.com. Um, all the information to my social media is there. Yeah, but I would much rather direct people to my site versus social media because as a sex educator, I don't know how long I'm going to be on any of these uh, spaces. So Yes. Well, I will put links to that in the show notes for sure. Cameron, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the very top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Elaine. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Nicole. We are going to do a hopefully fun little round of rapid fire questions if you're ready. I am ready. What's one thing that you're feeling particularly proud of from this year so far? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I have been very intentional about cutting negativity from my life this year. So really examining what are the things that fill me up and what are the things that take away a lot of my energy and seeing what I can do to release those things that take up too much time or too much energy or cause me distress. Um, and it has definitely been a process, but I feel like there were a couple of key factors that I just wasn't loving and I was able to work through amicable releases, um, with people and work, uh, to let those out of my life. And I'm on the other side of it now. And it actually feels really great. So I think it was the right call for me. Um, and so, yeah, I think this year, letting go of the things that didn't serve me um, was one thing that I'm really proud of. Mm, I love that. It's one of those things I feel like that's often really easier said than done. So good for you. Yeah, thank you. What's something that makes you come alive when you're what are you doing when you feel most alive? Oh, that's so funny because I was actually thinking about that question. I've been thinking about that question over the last couple of weeks and asking other people that question while simultaneously trying to figure it out for myself. And uh, one of the big things for me is food. And I think that it's not quite as much the act of cooking, although like coming up with recipes and just the sort of mundane element of prepping in the kitchen is is really enjoyable for me. But I think it's actually the act of feeding other people and being able to take the time to make something for them and to serve them and to 
bring them in my home if it's possible. Um, but it just le- at least provide them something to both nourish their body, but in the act of friendship, also nourish their spirit. And I think that is something that, um, I really love to do and I try to do in, in different ways, both um, within my community and for others. Mm, yeah, I'm very similar in that way. I also love cooking for and feeding other people. What's one thing that you're currently working to be better at? I think I am working, I've been working at letting go of things I have no control over. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard. Yeah. Yes, it and is. Someday. <laughs> Some days I'm better at it than others, but I think when I'm able to just almost detach myself from the moment and take a step back, I feel better about whatever it is that's happening. Uh, I guess I, you know, I'm not quite as caught up in whatever I'm feeling or whatever direction I'm being pulled in or whatever the conflict might be. And so letting go of control, um, even when maybe I shouldn't, (laughs) but just trusting the process more instead of putting the extra stress on myself to manage or micromanage something that's happening. Mm, That's incredibly well said. (laughs) What's something that you have read or watched or listened to lately that you really enjoyed and want to recommend? I am not done with it yet, but I have been devouring Elaine Welteroth's uh, More Than Enough. And I have like an hour-ish left on my Kindle. And it's just so, so good. I was not familiar with her and her story prior to reading this. And I don't even know where this recommendation came from, but it's really funny, really poignant, um, just so well written. And it's a very inspiring story as well as a really great reminder of our self-worth and the ways that there are voices out there that if we choose to pay attention to, are championing us as women, as underdogs, as women of color, um, even though mainstream media doesn't necessarily tell us that. So that's one that I am like so over the moon about. Um, And I'm also very excited about the new season of of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel coming out soon. So I've been rewatching the previous seasons for that. Mm, I love it. Last question. What's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? I think it would be the the logistics and specifics of change and challenge. So those things are constant in our lives. And I think there are things like – relationships or work that are pretty relatable for everybody or somebody comes like everybody comes across something in those areas in their lives but I think the specifics in ways that people get through struggle um in yeah so like in relationship in work I wish people were honest about like what are the specific ways that you needed to take a step back or like what are the things that you did rather than it was hard but I got through it yeah mm -hmm. Um, I think those are the things like it can be really hard to have public discourse about obviously because it is very personal but I wish that I wish that people who had those close friends were willing to sort of go out on a limb in that discomfort to say, Hey, like I'm really struggling with this and I know you've dealt with it before. Can you 
share with me, you know, what were the one or two things that really helped you through this time? Or is there anything that you see that I'm doing or not doing that you think uh, is helpful or, or is not helpful, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I'm with you on being really curious and interested in the details of something, not just like, this was hard, right? Like, what does that mean? What did yeah. you do? Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. Oh, I think it has, in ways, I think it has to do with like, being willing to be that friend that makes somebody uncomfortable mm-hmm. to help them grow because you care about them. And I think being willing to being willing to be that friend, but also be, willing to be on the receiving end of that, uh, I think is maybe sort of the very, very specific element that I'm looking for. Yeah. So you are a member of our wonderful Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful reoccurring per episode pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests. I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Sure. I was recommended the podcast from a friend of mine, and after listening to one or two episodes, what really struck me was that you paid your guests, and specifically, you wanted to pay um, previ- like underrepresented guests uh, more for their work and for their perspective, and that, that is something that really resonated with me. Uh, and then recently, when you decided to have a funding goal to transcribe your podcast, which is something that I've been looking for, I was like, yes, 100%, like, let's make that happen. So those are the two things that I think made me become a Patreon member. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. It's also um, really nice. I know you and I have kind of messaged about this, just that so many people are in the community because they share like those same values, right? Of making things more inclusive and just figuring out like being honest about the best ways to use money and all, you know, all of the things that sort of go into doing like a project like this that has so many different voices. And it's always such a treat to be supported by, by people who share my values. Yes. Um, will you share where you live and maybe a social media link if people want to say hi? Sure. I live in Sacramento and I have shifted in the last couple of years to making my personal account private, but I have a currently inactive, soon to hopefully be more active public account uh, for my food blog, which is Seasoned Vegetable. And Instagram is definitely the best place to reach me because that's pretty pretty much the only platform I'm active on right now. Yeah, same. I hear you. Um, Well, thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. Your support is what allows this show to continue. And I can't wait to get to know you better once you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug. And a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.